Would you open in your Bibles now to John's Gospel, chapter 15. A man went into a hardware store to buy a chainsaw. He said he wanted the best. The salesman showed him what he said was the best chainsaw filled with the latest technology guaranteed to cut 10 cords of firewood per day. Well, that impressed the guy. So he bought it right on the spot, took it home, but came back to the hardware store the very next day exhausted. He said, something's wrong with this chainsaw. I've only managed to cut three cords of wood with it all day long. He goes, now, with my old handsaw, I could cut four cords of wood. So something's wrong. The salesman said, okay, I'll take a look at it. Took it out back with the guy to a pile of firewood. The salesman grabbed the handle, pulled the cord, and the chainsaw went... And the guy who bought it said, what's that noise? (laughs) Can you imagine trying to cut with a chainsaw by hand without using the power of the motor? Well, you know what? It happens every single day as Christians try to live the Christian life in their own power, in their own strength. Tonight, I want to talk to you about what is considered the most mysterious person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God. The title of this message is Two-Thirds is Not Enough because so much about the Holy Spirit has been misunderstood for such a long time. Now, we've already read so far, Jesus announced to His disciples that He was leaving. This put them in a panic. They were afraid, but He assured them that the Father as the vine dresser would tend them Jesus as the vine would give them energy and life and that the Holy Spirit He had been promised to in this discourse. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit would all work to nurture them. Now Jesus describes more of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Before we jump into our text, let me read something to you that was written by Lloyd John Ogilvie, the chaplain of the United States Senate. This is what he writes. Sadly, many Christians settle for two-thirds of God. God the Father is way up there somewhere, aloof and apart from their daily lives. Christ is out there somewhere between them and the Father. The Holy Spirit is some kind of vague force or impersonal power that they hear about but do not know intimately. So ask yourself tonight, what is your relationship to the Spirit of God like? Is He your comforter? Is He your counselor? Is He your helper? You need Him. You need His ministry. You might say that God the Father gives us external life as Creator. God the Son, Jesus Christ, gives us eternal life by His redemption. And the Holy Spirit gives us internal life. What's that like? tonight. What's that internal spiritual life like? You remember that Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 12 said, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant. Literally, concerning things that pertain to the Spirit of God, I don't want you to be ignorant. Now you can 
bet that whenever Paul says he doesn't want you to be ignorant about something, that the church is ignorant about it. Just like in the other place, Paul said, concerning the coming of the Lord, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant. And those are two areas that the church seems to be most ignorant about. Things pertaining to the Holy Spirit and things pertaining to the coming of Jesus Christ. I find, not always, but often, an imbalance. That is, there is the camp that we should call cessational. They believe the gifts of the Spirit, the move of the Spirit, things that He did in the early church have ceased. They are afraid of talking about the Holy Spirit. I don't want to get into that stuff. It'll make me weird. I might start gibbering in some unknown language to the bank teller, to the postman. I don't know, but I don't want it. Then, on the other hand, there are those who are sensational. If they don't swing on a chandelier, if they don't do something phenomenal, somehow the Holy Spirit hasn't showed up. Well, we want to have a balance. That's the key word as we go through the truths of the Scripture. Holy Spirit has often been likened to a steam engine. You can use the steam to drive the engine forward, or you can let it all go out the whistle. We want that motivation of the Spirit to drive us in our Christian lives. We need to have a balance. By the way, it's hard to maintain. Groups want to peg you. Well, what exactly do you believe? Are you a fundamentalist or are you a charismatic? And I tell them I'm a fundamatic. <laughs> but let's go through the scriptures tonight and let's look at a few verses. And as we go through this text, some of which we're going to cover next week, some tonight, I'm going to emphasize certain words to draw out the first point. Beginning in verse 26 of chapter 15. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will testify of Me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with Me from the beginning. These things I have spoken to you, that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever thinks, whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. These things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send Him to you. And when He has come, He will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in Me. Of righteousness because I go to the Father and you see Me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak and He will tell you things to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. Now you notice that I emphasized He and Him and Whom. Thirteen personal pronouns are given 
which gives us our first point. The Holy Spirit is a person, not an it. Not an impersonal force. Not some cosmic consciousness. Not something like the Taos hum or may the force be with you, Luke. But an actual person. It's important to remember that. Way back in 318 A.D., a man named Arius of Alexandria, who denied the deity of Jesus Christ and denied the personhood of the Holy Spirit, said the Holy Spirit is simply a force that is impersonal. He is simply the essence of God. And because he said that, the church was in a controversy that brought to a head at the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. to determine what the Bible teaches about the Trinity, especially the Holy Spirit and the deity of Christ. You'll notice in the text that the Holy Spirit is given personal names. He is called the Counselor, or in our version, the Helper, the Encourager. And notice also, He's one who will teach, one who will guide Notice the attributes that are given to him. Look at verse 26 again of chapter 15. He will testify or speak or reveal. Look down in verse 8 of the next chapter. He will convict or you might say convince or sentence. Verse 13, he will guide, he will speak, he will tell. All in one verse. And then verse Uh, 14, in verse 15, He will take what is mine. He will declare it to you. These are traits of personality, not an impersonal force. And in the Bible, the Holy Spirit is said to have a mind, to have a will. He is said to intercede for us. He is said to have love for the saints. All things that reveal personality. As a person, the Holy Spirit can be grieved, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. He can be insulted, chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 29. And he can be lied to in Acts chapter 5. So that's personality. You can't have a personal relationship with an impersonal force. You don't have a personal relationship with gravity, with atomic energy. You can't lie to and insult cosmic consciousness. There is personality because the Holy Spirit is a person. Now this is where I do believe that certain in the charismatic movement have gone a little bit awry. In that, often the Holy Spirit is spoken of as some power, some force. You need more of it. You need to yield yourselves to it. We need more of the Holy Spirit as if it is some force. A hundred years ago, Reuben Torrey, R.A. Torrey, noticed this. And this is what he wrote. One of the greatest books on the Holy Spirit I've ever read. He said, "They, They are reaching out after and struggling to get possession of some mysterious and mighty power that they can make use of in their work according to their own will. But the Holy Spirit is to get a hold of them. We must rejoice that there is no divine power that beings so ignorant as we are, so liable to err, can get a hold of and use. How appalling might be the results if there were. And he continues, he says, The Holy Spirit is not a blind, impersonal influence or power that comes into our lives to illuminate, sanctify, and empower. 
No, he is immeasurably more than that. He is a holy person who comes to dwell in our hearts. So rather than asking, how can I get more of the Holy Spirit? The question ought to be, how can the Holy Spirit get a hold of more of me? How can I yield more of myself to Him? That's really the secret. Now why, why the confusion about, is He a person, is He a force? I think that part of the confusion through history has been because the way the Holy Spirit has been described in the Scripture. The word pneuma is used of him. Wind, breath, spirit is the idea. But it is a neuter noun. It doesn't have a personal emphasis. It's neuter. Also, the Holy Spirit was seen as coming like a dove upon Jesus Christ and as a dove at Pentecost. But those are simply metaphors or metonyms to describe the activity of the Spirit, not His essence. Example. In the Bible, Jesus is called the bread of life. doesn't mean he's a literal loaf of bread. He's called the door to the sheepfold. doesn't mean he's made out of wood. And likewise, God the Father in the Old Testament is seen as our rock, our refuge. The Bible says our God is a consuming fire. Does that mean God's a pile of rocks? God is a blast furnace? No, these are descriptions of God so that humans can understand them. To help us grasp the activity of the Spirit, these anthropomorphisms or divine attributes in human language are used. For example, Jesus promised in John chapter 7, If anyone thirsts, let him come after me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of his Spirit which was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now there is an activity of the Holy Spirit. In other words, those who follow Jesus Christ and are filled and sealed by the Holy Spirit will have a level of satisfaction about them that can only be described as rivers of living water. Now is that true of you? If people bump into you, when they bump into your life, Will the Holy Spirit, because you're so filled with Him, leak out, splash out, so to speak, on them? You know, one Christian leader said that Christianity in America is 3,000 miles wide and only a half an inch deep. It's widespread, but shallow in many cases. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit as a person would make a difference. Notice also that the Holy Spirit is not only a person, He is a divine person. Now, we have to get this truth. This is vital. When you understand this, your love and appreciation for the Spirit of God will go up. The Holy Spirit is not a substitute for God. Yet, sometimes people say He is. Back in the year 200, a guy named Sibelius said, I believe in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, but what he said is these are simply three names that describe one person only. These are different modes of God, rather than three distinct persons being co-equal and co-eternal. This is called modalism, three modes of God of one person's activity. 
But you'll notice in verse 26, Jesus says that He as a person is distinct. That He is coming from the Father. That He is sent by the Son. That's in verse 26 of chapter 15. And look down at verse 8 and 9 and 10 of the next chapter. The Holy Spirit will be active in the world. He proceeds from the Father. He's sent by the Son. And He will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all spoken about on a co-equal level, just like the baptism formula. You will baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, not and the impersonal force. There is divine personhood that has granted the Holy Spirit. Now, throughout history, Christians have defended and fought for the deity of Christ. How about defending the deity of the Holy Spirit? That's also as important. I want you to turn to uh, Acts chapter 5. Some of you know this so well and you think, well, I can repeat it to you. But that's all right. Turn to it anyway. Because tucked away in the book of Acts, woven into the biographical sketch of the early church is a strong affirmation of the deity of this person known as the Holy Spirit of God. But a certain man, Acts chapter 5, verse 1, named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And keep back part of the price of the land for yourself. While it remained, was it not your own? After it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. You may want to underline or circle those two phrases. One in verse 3, one in verse 4. When they lied to the Holy Spirit, verse 3, they lied to God, verse 4. One of the strongest affirmations that this is a divine person. Now, I will confess after asserting all this, I don't get it totally. I haven't wrapped my brain around it completely. I haven't mastered it wholly. I can look at the scripture and declare what it says, but how do you describe the indescribable? How do you fathom the unfathomable? How does finite, pea-sized brain man grasp infinite God? It's difficult. By the way, beware of anyone who says they do completely understand it. Oh, I know all about God. Well, in fact, I have several degrees that show that I am an expert on all things God. In fact, the more they know, they will probably, if they're honest, say, Oh, I know so little there's so much I need to learn. That's what happens with God. There was a teacher who spoke to his fifth grade class and he asked a question. He thought it would be a rhetorical no. He said, does anybody here understand electricity? Well, Jimmy, he was the kind of over-anxious kid who sits in the front row, waves his hand up in the air. I do! I understand electricity. Taken aback, the teacher said, you do, Jimmy? Stand up and explain to the class electricity. Jimmy stood up, turned around, thought really hard, 
And then he put his hands in his face and he said, Oh, I knew last night, but this morning I forgot. And the teacher, tongue-in-cheek, said, Now that is a tragedy. The only person in all of history who has understood electricity and it's forgotten this morning. You know what? Sometimes I feel a lot like Jimmy. I feel like I'm getting a handle on on God. I'm getting a handle on the Trinity. And then I'm at this chasm that has no, no floor to it. It's just unattainable. There's just so much more to know. And like electricity, I know I need electricity, I can enjoy electricity, I don't completely understand it. I know I need God, I love God, I enjoy God, but I don't completely fathom Him. But you'd expect that, wouldn't you? You'd expect because, after all, He is God, that there would be certain transcendent truths about Him that we would never understand. And I think this is one of them. Third, and finally, the Holy Spirit is an inconspicuous person. You'll see what I mean by that as we read a few verses. Go back to verse 26 again of chapter 15. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And then go down to verse 8. Once again, when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment of sin because they do not believe in me. Verse 14, he will glorify me. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. You get the idea that the primary work of the Holy Spirit is to draw everybody's focus and attention on Jesus? That is his primary work. Who does he testify of? Jesus. What sin does he convict the world of? That they don't believe in Jesus. Who does he glorify? Jesus. Of whose things will he take and reveal it to us? Jesus. In other words, the Holy Spirit is like a stage director directing the spotlight on the main actor, which is Jesus, holding up the applause sign so the people will applaud For Jesus, all the attention is to be drawn to Him, which makes sense, since the Old Testament and the New Testament centers in Jesus Christ and His redemptive work. You would expect the Holy Spirit following that line to center His entire ministry on Jesus Christ. In fact, listen to chapter 16, verse 13 in what is called the JNT, the Jewish New Testament. He, the Holy Spirit, won't draw attention to Himself. He will honor me. Did you get that? He won't draw attention to himself. He will honor me, Jesus. Beware of anyone, any leader, any church who magnifies people rather than Jesus. And beware of anyone who will follow people instead of Jesus. Let me go a step further. Beware of those who make the Holy Spirit the focus rather than Jesus Christ. See, oftentimes people pursue after the Spirit as their main objective, which according to Jesus isn't what the Holy Spirit is about. Any emphasis on the Holy Spirit that would detract from the main character, Jesus, is not a work of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit never said to the Trinity, the other two, hey, now wait a minute. 
when do I get my chance to reveal myself here? What about me? I'm co-equal. I'm God too. Doesn't do that. So when we go around and emphasize the noise, the whistle, the gifts, the Holy Spirit, we can possibly actually grieve the Holy Spirit who is trying to emphasize none other than Jesus Christ. And by the way, that's how you can test all teaching and all preaching. Is the effect of that to magnify Jesus or the person or a movement or anyone else other than Jesus? The Holy Spirit is doing His work in our lives. You're going to see Jesus clearly. Sort of like a floodlight outside the building. At night, we have a few floods that shine on the building up in front. Now, a floodlight is designed so that you can't see it, but you see what it's shining on. You don't shine a floodlight in people's eyes and say, see, a floodlight. (laughs) The whole purpose of it is to be inconspicuous so that you don't see the source, where it's coming from, but you see simply what it is meant to illuminate, the texture, the, the integrity, the majesty of whatever building it is shining on. The Holy Spirit is like that floodlight shining on the person and the character and the nature of Jesus. So the Holy Spirit is a person, a divine person, an inconspicuous person who's, who puts all the attention on Jesus. And secondarily, as this person, He cares for us, Jesus' friends. As Jesus said in John chapter 15, You are my friends. Look in verse 7. He's our helper. Jesus calls him that. The helper, if I depart, I will send him to you. Now, whether you know this or not, you need all the help you can get. Because the Christian life isn't easy, is it? You ever feel overwhelmed, like the pressure is too much? It would be if you were all alone. But you have a helper. The Amplified Bible says... One called to stand constantly by us who is ready to take part in everything in which His help is needed. Oh, this is good news. So the idea then in facing life, in facing difficulty, in facing uncertainty, to be filled with the Spirit of God who will be my helper. Dwight L. Moody used to love to give this illustration. He would hold up an empty glass. He would say, in this glass is air. How do I get the air out of this glass? And he would let the audience come up with some ideas. And one man would say, well, if you, if you take a pump and suck all the air out of the glass, that'll work. Moody said, that will never work because you'll create a vacuum and shatter the glass. And other people would give other ideas. Then he would smile, take a pitcher of water, and simply pour it into the glass and say, now all the air is gone because it is filled with water. And he went on to explain that victory in the Christian life doesn't come by sucking out one sin at a time, but rather being filled with the Helper, the Holy Spirit, one who is ready to take part in everything in which His help is needed. Now look down at verse 13. He's not only our helper, he's our director. He's called the Spirit of Truth. He will guide you into all truth. We touched on that a few lessons ago. He's the Spirit of Truth. He's the source of it. 
You could know the truth about God. You could know the truth about yourself. You could know the truth about heaven and the future unless the Holy Spirit revealed it. He's the Spirit of truth. Now, there is a word left out of our translation that ought to be there. In the original Greek language, there is an article, the, right before truth, when it appears both times in that verse. Tes aletheos, the truth. He is the spirit of the truth who will guide you into all the truth. That's important. It's not a generic truth. It's not, well, I have my truth, you have your truth. They're just different truths, but they're still true. None of that. It speaks of a specific kind of truth, a specific body of the truth, which can only be the New Testament, the documents that the Holy Spirit would oversee that centers upon the truth of the Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, you don't have to go outside the Bible to get some new truth given by the Holy Spirit. This is the truth. He's the spirit of the truth. Also, the Holy Spirit will guide you personally in the truth. Let Him be your director, your guide with the Scripture. Yes, teachers are important. Yes, pastors are important. Yes, books are great. Yes, Bible study tapes and radio shows are all great. But, Rather than being spoon-fed, you can be spirit-fed. The Spirit can show you personal things right out of the Word yourself. You know, I read an interesting story about a family taking a vacation. They were driving from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, to Tampa, Florida. As they were driving, on either side of the road were thousands upon thousands of orange trees, full of oranges. Stopped into a restaurant, ordered breakfast, and a pitcher of orange juice. The waiter said, I'm sorry, we don't have any orange juice. Now that was ironic because there were literally millions of oranges everywhere. There were oranges outside on the trees. There were oranges in the kitchen. But he said, I can't give you orange juice. Our machine is broken. They'd become so dependent on the machine, they couldn't make a glass of orange juice. And we ought not to be so dependent on the sermon machine, the preaching machine, the Sunday machine, but let the Holy Spirit guide and direct us into all of the truth. He's the helper, He's the director, and He is also our power. Go back to verse 26 one final time. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will testify of me. And notice this. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And then Jesus goes on to describe what the world will do to them. That's what we talked about last week. Because you're my friends, the world's going to be your enemy. And this is how they're going to treat you. But don't divorce the truth of verse 27 from the truth of verse 26. With the Spirit's testimony to us, the Holy Spirit will bring that testimony through us. What the Holy Spirit reveals to us, He wants to reveal through us. He becomes our power, our dynamic, to stand up and give a witness for Christ before this world. Last week we looked at Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Remember? It says, 
You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Remember Jesus said to his disciples, go into all the world, go. But do you remember what he said in the beginning of the book of Acts? He said, wait. I said go, but first wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. You have marching orders. The world is your oyster. Go for it. Preach to it. But before you go, don't go in your own power. Don't be like the guy with the chainsaw not turning on the motor. Wait for the power before you get out there and do it. Listen to this little article, Associated Press from Glasgow, Kentucky. Leslie Puckett, after struggling to start his car lifted the hood and discovered that someone had stolen the motor. Don't try to drive a car like that. Don't try to live a life like that. And when the Holy Spirit is in you, with you, and upon you, as it says in Acts, it will be a marvel and you will realize it really isn't me. It's like that glass filled with water. There's an ancient story about a brave soldier whose sword was dreaded by his enemies. Well, the king of the empire said, I've got to see this sword. I've heard so much about it. So he demanded that this soldier's sword be sent to him for examination. He looked at it. He scrutinized it. And he said, I see nothing wonderful in this. Why should anybody be afraid of this sword? The soldier heard about it and responded, Ah, the king only examined the sword, not the arm that wields the sword. For if he would have examined that, he would have understood its mystery. And whenever you see somebody mightily used of God and you go, How does that work? You're only looking at the sword, not the arm that wields it, the Holy Spirit. And by the way, that sword can be you. God has a purpose for your life that can only be realized as you are filled with the Spirit. Let's pray for that. Lord, you told us to go into all the world and to bear a message. It would be a message that centers on Jesus Christ. He said, you will be my witnesses, even as the Holy Spirit is Jesus' witness. But Lord, you also told them to wait until the power is there. Father, we pray that just as a hand would put itself into a glove and fill that glove, that we would be so filled with the Spirit that our lives would be directed and controlled by Him, even though inconspicuously at times, being helped and being directed and being empowered by Him. Whether we feel something or not isn't the issue. But you delight in taking simple vessels, ordinary swords, and making them a dread even to our enemy. I pray we would be that, Lord, that we would be by our very lives and testimonies a threat to the kingdom of darkness. We can't do it on our own. It's impossible. We don't want to be like the guy with the chainsaw who didn't turn it on or the guy who tried to drive his car without a motor. We pray that your spirit would fill us afresh tonight. Baptize us anew, Lord, that our lives, like that of the Spirit, would center on Jesus, 
and we would do His work and His exploits by Your power. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.